This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You do kind of wonder (laughs) if we're getting a lot of warning signs right now of things to come for the financial market. So much going on, including overnight Chinese President Xi hitting back against President Trump's America First policies uh, with some of his most pointed language yet denouncing, I love this, law of the jungle and beggar thy neighbor trade practices. So much going on, uh, including the midterms uh, and the bond market, what it has in common with Jaws, something John Authors talked about with us on Friday. He is back. He's senior editor at Bloomberg Markets in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio uh, in New York City. John, good to have you here with us. When you look at kind of all of the stuff that go, that is going on, there's a lot that we could say investors are focusing on. Um, what do you think is the most po- important? And how does the news from China and uh, President Xi kind of fit into uh, investors' psyche right oh, now? China is plainly more important than any other single factor, arguably including the states, for the two reasons uh, that the potential scale of, on both the downside and the upside is that much greater, and because there is much greater sense uh, in this country and also in Europe and Japan that people just don't know what to think, to think about China in a way that they do have an idea what to think about the states. You can disagree about the data, but there is much more confidence in the data here than there is in China. So China hugely matters. And so what do what do you think investors need to hear to give them clarity on what happens next in this face-off, as it were, between the U.S. and China over trade? What's the next leg of this? Well, that's very difficult to see from here. My suspicion, and I might be wrong about this, uh, we're obviously locked in, we now know from Xi's latest words, the, uh, the, the chicken game taken from the James Dean movie where the two guys drive yes. a car straight at each other. The chicken game continues for now. Uh, and I think what we need, so it's highly unlikely that either side is going to move uh, in a way that we can all see that they're moving for the foreseeable future. What we need to see is exactly how strong the Chinese position is. Now, I think there is a very interesting analogy here with the last great power struggle, which is Reagan versus Gorbachev in the 80s. There are ah. some people who will tell you that Reagan won the Cold War by going out, building up arms, and just saying, we are going to win this crushing the Soviet Union. And there are others who will say Reagan was very lucky because the Soviet Union was in the process of collapsing under its own contradictions, and luckily for him it did so when he was in power. There are, I don't know enough to tell you which is right. Obviously there's a, a lot of sense in either of those suggestions. If China's internal position is as bad as some fear it is, it's accounted for more than three-quarters of all the private sector debt that's been created in the entire world since Lehman... If it's as bad as it looks, then China is probably going to cave. If it isn't, then it's not going to cave, and we might well actually have a trade war before we find out who wins. You know, when we talk about black swans, to me, like I kind of got shivers, that could be the next black swan. If indeed, in terms of China and the debt 
and it's mm. an inability to kind of carry everything out that it's that it's setting out to. Um, I'm not saying that that it is, but when mm. we think about things that would really impact and and um, upset the global market environment, something like that is is it really likely, John? <laughs> I, I mean, don't China, know. China has such deep <laughs> <Is> pockets. <it laughs> well, they have such deep pockets. Mm. Well, that's an interesting question again, though. Or does it? Is are those pockets as deep as they were? They have. Um, yes, the reserves are still enormous. They did manage to burn through something like, off the top of my head, so I don't have it in front of me, some 20% of them in the space of a year, mm-hmm. not so long ago. Um, and their ongoing surpluses are dramatically less than they used to be. If you get to a situation where the um, bear market in stocks continues so that so that it's difficult to effectively offload your debt problem onto uh, equity investors uh, and if you do get to the moment the, 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 the moment that perpetually bothers me the most which happened a year ago when uh, the communist party was having its congress and the outgoing head of the people's bank of china speculated about wanting to avoid uh, wanting to rein in credit before they had a minsky moment and a Minsky moment for the uninitiated, it's like a Lehman crisis. Right, right. Um, so, so that the fact that central bankers don't say things like that in public unless right. they really want to get a scary message across. Right. Got to ask you about the midterms because mm. one of the yes. things you point out uh, in your column, and I don't want to steal your thunder, is that mm. essentially the midterm elections or the run-up to the midterm elections is hard to discern in the markets, especially over the last month. So yep. then how do we go into tomorrow in a market mindset. Okay. I would agree completely with what I, I've already said in public. Uh, you, it's very hard to map the, the polls, which didn't change very much during the month of October, with the very dramatic market events in October. My best guess is that the what is currently expected is close to an ideal market outcome. Uh, the uh, stock market in general likes... Trump, the Trump agenda, obviously. What it doesn't like, as we were saying on Friday, is rising bond yields. If you have an untrammeled White House, you might get another tax cut. My personal opinion is that if that happens, uh, you really do get the moment when, to return to an analogy from Friday, the shark munches the toddler. Right, uh, and the shark <laughs> then starts munching everything else around. That 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 bond yields spike in such a way that they really bring down the stock market. Whether 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 the president realizes this or not, I think that's what would happen. So the best so, news for the president, mm. from an economic perspective, could be divided government. Yes, and generally speaking, over history, gridlock right. is good for bonds because that's what happens. Congress doesn't let. Presidents do things that would make them popular with the voters, and that does make them popular with the bond market. But just when you think it's safe to go back in the water, uh, those higher yields could reappear. Yes. John, thank you so much. Great stuff. John Authors is senior editor at Bloomberg Markets in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Monday. Well, the amount of oil in the ground and what it costs, Carol, that is something uh, people pay very, very close attention to. A uh, few people pay closer attention from a geopolitical perspective uh, than Ellen Wald. Uh, she is a PhD as well. I shouldn't shortchange her yes. uh, in that regard. She's also the president of Transversal Consulting. Uh, joining us on the phone down in Jacksonville, Florida. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, all of which is to say... 
Ellen, you know a thing or two about what we're going to ask you about. So let's talk about Iran because those sanctions roll back on today, but they're not maybe exactly what people were led to believe uh, when President Trump said we were getting back into this business. Yeah, President Trump came out pretty strongly when uh, the new sanctions were announced back in May, saying that oil uh, from oil exports from Iran would be reduced to zero, and that's definitely not the tune that we're seeing right now. And in fact, we started to hear whispers of this back in October, which is, I think, one of the reasons why oil started to come down around then. But today we we heard uh, officially that the uh, State Department and and the Treasury Department are offering or have offered temporary exemptions uh, to eight countries or or jurisdictions, uh, China, India, Turkey, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Italy, and Greece, uh, to continue to import Iranian oil for 180 days. So I feel like, um, Ellen, it is classic President Trump, art of the deal, but maybe it ultimately will be a softer deal than I originally threatened. Uh, that's what's going on. You write, though, uh, an opin- opinion piece for Bloomberg Opinion. This came out uh, on Friday about the importance of the U.S. administration, the Trump administration, taking a hard line, though, when it comes to Iran. Yeah, and this is, this is I think, classic um, Trump negotiation here to come in really strong saying we expect – you know, total compliance, we expect X, Y, and Z. And then uh, later, when they see what they can get, uh, coming back kind of with, with a, a less harsh stance. And, and this is really what we've seen uh, from him several several times. But now that they've offered these waivers or, or these exemptions, the real question is going to be they've got to now follow up with that later. And President Trump said today that one of the reasons for the waivers was he really didn't want to push the oil market up, push prices up too fast. And we definitely saw indications of that happening in, in August but at the same time, that means that in 180 days, they've got – and the oil market, we need to see reductions. Otherwise, all of the muscle or all of the might behind his rhetoric is really not going to mean anything. So, Ellen, I, I'm hoping you can synthesize a few things for us here because we've obviously been paying a lot of, of attention uh, to Saudi Arabia over the past few weeks, especially you know, given all uh, the, the problems, shall we say, uh, around uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, you wrote a terrific book, came out earlier in the, this year, called Saudi Inc., uh, really looks at Aramco and its role. Saudi Arabia obviously figures largely in this relationship uh, with Iran, the United States, and everyone else. So how does some of the recent turmoil figure into where this goes from here, if at all? Yeah, Absolutely. So Saudi Arabia is definitely playing a big role right now. And uh, we saw a lot of that coming out in uh, particularly in in President Trump's tweets and calls to the Saudis uh, during those uh, late summer months when we saw oil prices going up. He was calling them saying, look, you guys need to increase production. You said you were going to. You need to do this because, uh, you know, we're the ones who are uh, putting these sanctions on Iran. And for a while there, it was the Saudis were not really sending the message message of, yes, we're increasing production. And part of that has to do with this very, uh, I would say, traditional 
traditional Saudi uh, take on the market, which is that it's got to be good for business for them if they're going to, uh, if they're going to, you know, increase or or decrease production. There has to be a good business reason. They have to see it as a way to make money. Uh, They're not going to just do it as a favor, say, to the United States. And I think that uh, we definitely saw that in some of their their hesitation in their messaging that they thought that the oil market was well supplied. Great stuff. Really great to get your uh, context and your insights onto this. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting, also the author of Saudi Inc., uh, joining us from Jacksonville to talk about Iran, Saudi Arabia, and all the rest of it. Thank you so much. So here we are on uh, midterm eve, and our next guest says that uh, when it comes to the financial markets, he sees things getting better once we get past uh, the midterm elections. Let's bring in uh, back with us Mark Jimbroni. He's a managing director, equity portfolio manager over at uh, Barrow Hanley, roughly $86 billion in assets under manager, based in Dallas, but in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Nice to have you back. Thank you. Happy to be back. Good afternoon. So getting better, what does that mean? Um, I, I think the main thing is the market does not like uncertainty. So right now, clearly, these elections bring uncertainty to the market. We're not sure what's going to happen. Not but, just- but do they really? And I have to bring that up because we had an earlier conversation sure. with one of our markets guys who says, I don't think investors are paying much attention to the midterms. I uh, I. I totally disagree from the perspective that there's an unknown out there. And there are, you know, some, in some cases, binary outcomes, right? So first of all, we'll just be past the election. So let me be clear. That's one thing that will be different. We'll be past it. Yep. We'll know the results. Cross it off the list. Um, if it goes the way they expect, a Democratic House and a you know, Republican Senate, you know, probably not that big of an issue. If it goes either other way, which no one expects, I would think there'd be real volatility in the market. The good news is, is, as I heard an earlier guest mention, it's been since 1946, so 18 straight periods after a midterm election, that the market has gone up the next year. So yeah, Dave it, Wilson mentioned that, so too. So to say that it doesn't focus on it, I'd say for 18 periods in the past, it's focused on it, and then when we got through it, it was okay. So yeah. it's, it is, I don't want to say it's different this time, but there are other larger issues, right? So there's interest rates, there's tariffs, there's other things, and tariffs is another good example of what I believe is a politicized issue at this point. Getting us through the midterms hopefully will allow us then to focus on a solution rather than all this conversation and negativity. And I think that the market would like that too if we could get to that point. Well, and I got to think, I mean, you've had, just dwell on politics for one more minute. I mean, you've had a front row seat to this. I mean, just with your Senate race alone. I mean, people must be knocking on your door literally and figuratively every day. The robocalls must be Outrageous! There are, there are signs everywhere. I did notice also here in New York there are a lot of commercials on TV. We happen to have those. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I mean, it's hard to know. It, it is yeah. going to be a fairly close race, yeah. so they say. And and it's unusual to be having that conversation in a place that's traditionally, yes. obviously, Republican. And so, so when you're having those type of conversations, um, it tells you that there is some uncertainty. And again, once we get the, whatever it happens to be the result, we will deal with that result and move forward. I think the market would rather have a result move forward than just not to know what's going to happen. Mark, yeah. you know, you run um, a couple of value funds. And, you know, we, we have said kind of on and off, especially with the pullback in the equity universe in October, that, that finally the value guys are saying, thank God, I finally can buy some stuff. Were you buying in October? Yes. Um, so we were adding to positions mostly that we had. One of the things about October specifically Did you have was, a lot of money in cash before that? 
Some. So, you know, when again, when clients give us money, the expectation is we're going to put it to work in the market. Okay. So we keep what's called traditional cash. We don't try to time the market with cash necessarily, but you can take things that are down more or you could reposition a portfolio a little to create, you know, excess liquidity to buy names that are that are looked the best at that moment. Um, one thing that happened in October, in my mind, is that it was somewhat indiscriminate in terms of a sell-off. So, yes, things were down, and yes, technology was down a little more, but um, it wasn't as though some areas really held up in the market and others, you know, collapsed. That's really the best environment for a value manager. But, so what were you buying? Um, well, we were adding some things in financials. We were adding some things in consumer discretionary. Um, actually, we were looking at some REITs and, and buying some areas in there. So one of the things to think about as we move forward is I do think value versus growth is this big sort of conversation. As rates rise, as economic growth slows, as earnings growth slows, it's not as though it's not going to be good. It's just going to be slower next year than it was this year. We can talk a little more about that if you'd like. But the reality is those are the type of environments that generally bring value back into play versus just growth. And I think we're seeing some of that happening in the market today, and it'll keep happening. And so in a more normalized market environment, value tends to shine. I think we're going to be seeing that as we move forward. Yeah. What What are the names, that, you know, as we dig into your portfolio a little bit that I wanted to ask you about? Because we had a, a, a conversation about it. Late last week's Dollar General. I knew you were um, going to go there. Yeah, sure. I mean, I just I love talking about this name, this name cool. um, in part because they're expanding, you know, into some urban markets with this DGX concept. Uh, we had one of our reporters talking to us about that. Why is Dollar General a good bet in this type of economy? Because it makes a lot of sense when the economy turns a little bit. Certainly, we saw that in the wake of the last financial crisis. Why now? Yeah, well, we, we love Dollar General for a lot of reasons. So first of all, we got involved with the stock because there was just a malaise around retail versus Amazon. And Amazon was going to take care of everything, and all the multiples went down. As a value manager, you look for kind of the baby with the bathwater in those scenarios. Dollar General stood out to us. It stood out to us because it's a great business. Um, believe it or not, most of the customers pay in cash. It's a, it's a multiple transaction per week, so small 8 to $12 type transactions. Right. A lot of people actually walk to the stores. Clearly, most of their customers do not qualify for what would be considered Amazon Prime. They're in more urban and rural locations, and yet there's growth to the story. So you've got a great business. You've got growth. You've got good earnings and cash flow. You've got good capital allocators. You know, they've got lots of stores, but they have lots of ways to continue to expand and grow that store base significantly like, over time. Because the story we did was about the expansion to the urban areas and how you kind of have to adapt. Do you, is that smart? Because uh, there's it's, so many choices when it comes to retail. I, I think it's to be in determined. An urban environment. I think it's to be. Family Dollar did something similar years ago and actually pulled back. And so, yeah. you know, the great thing about Dollar General Store is it tends to dominate the little market that it's in. And yeah. that's the place you're going to go for things. Okay? It's the general in Dollar General, as it's, we were talking about. Yeah. That's exactly correct. And so, from that perspective, yes, we love that. As, as they try new things, that's the point of trying it, right? But when you have thousands and thousands of stores, you're going to try other concepts. And do we think they can bring value to a market? Sure. Do we think if you have good locations? Yes. But I would say the urban environment has never been something that the dollar store specifically has done extremely yeah. well in, so we'll have to wait and see. But, but let's be clear. We're talking about something very marginal versus the overall story of this business, which is a— Is it getting, though, a little expensive? I'm just looking at quarter-to-quarter -quarter comparisons in terms of revenue growth. We saw, I guess, about 10% uh, in the last quarter, 9% before that, 8% for the upcoming. And this is a stock, if I look at uh, P.E., that forward-looking P.E. of about 19, current about 21. Is it getting, though, a little expensive as um, a value play? It has had a meaningful run lately. We think there are multiple things they can do to improve margins, some to improve cash flow, some, and then obviously that would bring down the PE uh, over time. And we still think, therefore, it's a good value. I will tell you that as you, you still think it's a good value. We still think it's a good value here okay. as we move forward. And uh, one of the things to keep in mind too is it does tend to do much better as the economy tends to slow. 
Right. right? So it's a, it's a defensive name because, again, if, you, if you're going to Dollar General, if you're going to get a toothbrush and a toothpaste and et cetera, you know, you're going to still need those things in any environment. And um, so, therefore, we also like it moving forward into potentially a more slower growth environment overall. We think it'll hold up better. Conoco Phillips, just quickly, we've got about 45 seconds, 30 seconds. You like this one as well. And you guys, have, have you been adding to it? Uh, right? It's in a couple of your portfolios. Actually, it like. it's not one we've been adding to. It's had a phenomenal run. Okay. Um, have and, you been selling off, pairing back? Uh, yes, we have been. And uh, I, I want to say that we like Conoco Phillips a lot. But it's had a big run. Yeah. And so as things approach our price target, we tend to look for other things to be able to put money into in the energy patch. We've clearly seen a pullback across the board here as the commodity prices come back a little bit. So there are some other names that, um, that we think have more value and that we're trying to add to at this point. Great, great stuff. Mark Jimbroni, Managing Director and Equity Portfolio Manager at Barrow Hanley, based down in Dallas, but here with Carol and myself in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Always good to be with you. Thanks for stopping by. <laughs> we're talking about cannabis everybody if you, if you didn't figure that out green growth brands they raised uh about uh 85 million canadian i think that's about 65 million u.s in september they are in the midst of building a north american retail cannabis network and they're en route to an ipo uh in the coming week so we want to get an update uh on all of this back with us is peter horvath he's ceo at green growth brands former ceo of victoria secrets uh here with jason kelly and myself in our bloomberg interactive broker studio nice to have you back oh great to be back this is a busy yeah. week it's a crazy week every, tell- every week's a crazy week in this industry well tell me yeah. so where are we right because yeah. you know we've talked we talked with you just a, a few months ago and about all that's going on and kind of how excited everybody has and then I feel like we got a reality check to some extent where are we well I think I think it's steady as she goes uh, I you know I think uh, the market still is amazing the valuations out there are, are curious but you have to go with what the, what people are willing to invest in. Um, you know, our own story, Green Growth Brands, this morning we just announced that we had a private placement of another $55 million. Um, and I think we've got a lineup of strategic investors that, you know, could be similar. So it seems like, well, you know, all the other people in this industry have a lot of licenses, and that's what they're raising money on. We're raising it based on the promise of what you can do if you think about consumers before you think about product. And this is what's interesting about this story. And what types of investors are, are attracted to this story, Peter? Well, I hope all types of investors ultimately, but since we're not, you know, we're going to be trading maybe as early as Thursday, most likely next Tuesday. So that's for all kinds of investors. But before you get to the public markets, there are, um, you know, private placements, there are strategic investors, which is what we discovered. We went out to look for $55 million. We found $150 million worth of demand. We cut it back to just the people who basically can invest in us and also give us uh, access to markets and distribution channels. And we're, we haven't announced these yet, so they're going to be coming in the next few weeks. But it's amazing. It's like, how do you grow a business fast? I guess with partners. Right, right. That's the best way. Well, go figure, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, a consumer brand, that's what it's about, though. Distribution, mm-hmm. right? And partners. Talk to us a little bit about how you envision the brand down the road. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have to do justice. There's really two businesses. There's this um, you know, federally legal CBD beauty and personal care business with adjacent categories that we're getting access to distribution and grocery stores. We just started selling, you know, I can name this because you can go see it for yourself. We started selling product in DSW, which is a shoe store, as you know. Jason loves that shoe store. <laughs> Love it. I buy shoes there. <laughs> so, so we put product out there. So it's a brand no one has ever seen. There's absolutely no marketing. 
it's uh, it's personal care. It's face and body in a shoe store. And yeah, what's that? And Explain the selling. that to me. So, so it's selling. I do. It's selling I have like spent crazy. time in DSW. I have bought shoes at DSW, and they do have a lot of different yes, retail opportunities the there, right? Yeah. So once you get in the wrap desk line, right? Yeah. So you're in the line. You're captive. You know you're going to spend money. Right. You're in the Miswell line. Might as well buy some of this. Might as well buy yeah. some of that. So one of the Miswells and one of the best ones is is uh, Seventh Sense beauty product that we have. So there's muscle balm, there's uh, foot cream with CBD that'll soothe your feet. Yeah. There's, uh, there's face care, there's, uh, there's uh, body care. And basically the sell-throughs we're seeing are three times what we, ex- what we used to see at Bath & Body Works, which, hey, that's a multi-billion dollar business, $5 billion. I'm kind of blown away. We weren't expecting this because we're going to get to other sources eventually. So, Peter, I, I got to ask you. So is the distribution and the retail model, is it going to be what you just described in in existing retailers or are you going to have standalone retail? Yeah. What's the vision? Here? Look, here's the thing. Everybody in beauty already has developed product with CBD. They're large um, slow companies that have a, a market cap to protect a non-CBD business. So they're going to take their time getting it out there. We're going to be the category killer. The way we're going to do it, we're going to be in mall kiosks. Yeah, it won't be dead sea salt. You won't get chased down the, the mall by any of our people. Well, maybe it will. Yeah. But, um, but kiosks. Kiosks will be a quick way to get out there fast. Like we could have 500 kiosks a year from now. It's doable. We've got, we've got people that will give us access to that real estate. Uh, partners and uh, that's so it's exciting. yours alone, right? That kiosk will be your yes, brand. Yes, absolutely. Because what I mean, we're, well, we might carry other brands as well, but there's uh, going to be our product for sure. I mean, because in terms of retail, like I think about cosmetics and something, I think about a Sephora. Like, yes. is that Sephora a will logic? have a CBD section in their store, right. and they'll probably carry our product. What I, you know, what fascinates me is I feel like I've started seeing this pop up, and that people really haven't needed to necessarily be educated no. about these products. That is no. amazing that you know, they're willing if, to. If the packaging looks great, if it smells great, and if it feels great, if it's not greasy, if it, you know, th- then you might find out later on your phone that, oh, CBD is an anti-inflammatory. It's got all these other benefits. 20 seconds, regulatory oversight, though, of this stuff. I care about this stuff when I'm buying right, healthcare right. products. So, so it's federally legal if it's sourced from, a, from uh, the proper source, and we're talking about oil. Yeah. And the oils uh, have to come from a source that's legal according to the 2014 Farm Act. And there is a new Farm Act coming out. It's in the lame duck session, uh, maybe after the election. We'll see what happens. Come back and talk to us after the IPO? Yes, absolutely. Good Thank stuff. you. Yeah, you bet. Peter Horvath, he's Chief Executive Officer at Green Growth Brands, former CEO of Victoria's Secret. We love talking about the cannabis industry with him, also the retail industry overall. He's based in Columbus, Ohio, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Monday. Carol Masser, Jason Kelly, and this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. This drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
It is time for the drive to the close. Chris Mahar is here. He's chairman and CEO at Ocean First Financial, and he's based down the shore, as we Jersey types like to say. Uh, but he's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York City. Nice to have you here. Um, interesting week. You've got the Fed meeting. You've got the midterms. You've got U.S. and China continuing to kind of work forward or not, depending on how you see it. Um, what seems to be the most important issues for you right now? Well, it's a bunch of short-term issues. So as you hit it, there's the uncertainty in the markets. And the uncertainty around uh, not just the elections but trade policy is putting our clients in a position where they've got to really think hard about investments they're, make, they're making. So the underlying economy looks great. I mean, you couldn't have better jobs numbers. You couldn't have, uh, you couldn't have more good signals in the market, which would cause you to want to invest. But you, the, the, uh, our clients are thinking twice and saying, you know, maybe they want to see the outcome of the week before they do that. So let's talk about where the rubber is meeting the road for some of your commercial clients, especially as it relates to tariffs. We've heard a lot of rhetoric from both sides, and both sides being China and the U.S., not even getting into the rest of the world. But just on that alone, are they changing their behavior at all? What's the, what, what do you see when it really comes down to their behavior? Sure. So there's been no change in behavior to date. So the, the, the implementation of the tariffs has been relatively light so far, so not a lot of products and it hasn't really uh, kind of hit. However, it's the um, uncertainty about the future that's causing the biggest issue. So no change to current behaviors, but we have a lot of commercial clients that are family-owned firms, but larger firms. Okay, These are firms that might do more than $100 million in sales. They need to make investments in everything from rail sidings to barges to warehouses um, you know, we're fortunate in New Jersey to be at the center of the transportation economy. Uh, but with that comes infrastructure. And, you know, if, if it's your own company, it's your dollars at risk, and you're going out there to invest in a barge or a rail siding, you're thinking twice until you want to see how trade settles out. That's what I care about, right? That's when it when something really starts to change business owners, business, you know, folks, folks in business in terms of changing their decisions. And that's what you're starting to see. Yeah. You know, what, what it is, is it's capital on the sidelines. It's right. lost opportunities. That's what it is. And so what else are they worried about right now? So sort of strip that away. I mean, you have an intimate look into the biggest decisions, um, you know, that CEOs and, and CFOs uh, are making. Are, are they worried about the economy overall? What, what's on their minds? So, you know, they are looking at a few things where there are areas of weakness. So I would talk to the, the housing numbers mm-hmm. and the numbers around auto sales. And those are very early indications uh, that, look, if it's just a blip, that's not going to be a big deal. But if it's more protracted in nature and you say, wow, you know, housing really, you know, will start to get into a setback, that could be an issue. So some of that's probably rate driven. Uh, and some of it may just be a temporary imbalance until things kind of come back. Does that mean they're stopping in terms of hiring, or they still have hiring needs and demands? No, fortunately, the hiring uh, the hiring world's been very strong, so they're not stopping hiring. In fact, they're desperate to find. So they're folks not negative enough to say, "Wait, we're going to pull back." No, no, no. But hiring is you know it's a relatively short term decision. You know the, that investment. You know we have a, a company that operates barges. Each one of their integrated barges is a fifty million dollar investment, right? And it will take five to ten years to pay that back. So that's a that's a decision they'll wait on the hiring the need today they absolutely need and you'll see that the employment market is going to be strong so hiring can be a little more variable but it sounds like capex is what's really maybe sitting on the sidelines absolutely and okay. then once you get clarity i think they'll come off the sidelines strong they've got cash they've got liquidity they've got confidence they will make those investments they just need a little more clarity around the market so jason and i've been doing this with i think everybody who's coming on today because we are midterm eve in terms of the outcome how will that potentially impact legislative policy, economic policy, market policy? 
Okay, I think you have to separate that into, you know, if you're looking at it from a trader's perspective versus an investor's perspective. So on the trading side, if you're in this in the market in the short term, there's a lot of different ways that that could play out. In the long term, though, you know, whether the, the house goes this way or that way by a few seats probably doesn't make much of a difference. But what would make a difference is if the markets remain volatile, the wealth effect has a lot to do with consumer confidence. So if, if folks start for the looking wealthy. at- For yeah, the For those who are actually in well, the market. For every, well, for well, folks that have a 401k. Right. Yeah. So if you have a 401k and it's taken a little bit of a hit and it bounces back, that's no big deal. But if your 401k and the value of your house, right, the two biggest assets you're going to have, mm. if those stay deal. down for a while, then you might delay that car purchase. And that's where you might see the consumer think twice. But I think a little bit of volatility is no big deal. If it's protracted, though, that's where you're going to have an issue. So I got to imagine you talk to your counterparts across the country, you know, on a fairly regular basis, whether it's at a conference or just people you know from being in the business. Is it pretty consistent across the country in terms of what uh, they're hearing from from their customers? Or, or is there a sort of regional strength and weakness as much as you can tell? Sure. I, I have the wonderful opportunity. I sit on an advisory board for the Federal Reserve, and I see colleagues from all across the country. Each of, each of the Fed districts sends, uh, in fact, we've got a meeting coming up in two weeks. Correct. When they come together, it's a wonderful opportunity to get that pulse of the nation, and it's relatively consistent. You certainly see faster growth rates in places like Florida and Texas mm-hmm. and Arizona, uh, slower growth rates in places like the Northeast, but the themes are the same. Transportation is big everywhere. You know, retail a little bit slower, you know, those kinds of themes. All right. So what worries you? What keeps you up at night? Well, I think, you know, you worry about that uh, external event, you know, something that could kind of shock the economy that's unanticipated. What could that be? Because we kind of hinted a, a, about that earlier, a saying it concerns about China and that being a more of a protracted slowdown and some problems about the debt there. Sure. I mean, if you think about geopolitical events, right, our largest the largest economy other than us in the, in the world is China. So you, you watch that closely. The visibility into that economy is not the same as the visibility into our economy. So it's not clear if we would really see something sliding until it's slid to the point where it becomes a big issue. So transparency, I think, is key. we got to run. Thank you so much. Thanks, Carol. Good to have you in. Chris uh, Moore, he's chairman and CEO at Ocean First Financial, based in Toms River, New Jersey. That's where we used to go down the shore, Jason Kelly, growing up. I'm (laughs) jealous of that. It sounds like a very nice place. Down the shore, right? Down the shore. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.